Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast series. My name is Georgia Ray, and I'm a research associate here at the Environmental Law Institute. If you are a regular listener, you may be used to hearing Heather's voice. I want to first extend a thanks to you for being a regular listener, and secondly, let you know that I will be taking over for Heather as the new podcast host. I'm excited to continue bringing you interesting discussions regarding current issues in environmental law and governance. This week, we have an episode from our partner, Sidley Austin LLP. Sidley Austin LLP and ELI have joined together to launch the second season of the podcast series entitled The Enforcement Angle. Through the year-long series, our goal is to discuss state and federal enforcement of environmental and energy laws and regulations with senior enforcement officials and thought leaders on environmental enforcement in the United States and globally. Today's host is Emily Malin. Emily is a partner in the Energy, Transportation, and Infrastructure Practice Group at Sidley Austin LLP in Washington, D.C. She appears regularly on behalf of energy clients before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC. On today's episode, Emily speaks with Matt Christensen, the general counsel of FERC. Prior to being named general counsel, Matt served as the legal advisor to Chairman Glick. He joined then-Commissioner Glick's office in 2017 from the commission's office of the general counsel. Before joining commission staff, He served as a law clerk to the Honorable Stephen F. Williams on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit and the Honorable Jesse M. Furman on the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. He was also an Energy Law and Policy Fellow at NYU Law School's Guarini Center on Environmental Energy and Land Use Law. His academic work has appeared in the Harvard Law Review, the Texas Law Review, and the Energy Law Journal. He is a graduate of Yale Law School and Columbia University. He and his wife, Celia, have two daughters and live in Washington, D.C. I will now pass it over to Emily to conduct the interview. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining the podcast today. My name is Emily Mallon. I'm a partner at Sidley Austin in Washington, D.C., and I'm delighted to be joined today by Matt Christensen, who's the general counsel of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. I have been practicing before FERC, as we'll probably be referring to it today, for 15 years. So it's really exciting for me to speak to such a FERC insider, which we know Matt is, about some of the priorities of the agency, and especially as it relates to climate change and the grid of the future and where all that stands. So Matt, I want to say thank you for agreeing to do this today and welcome. Thank you, Emily. It's a pleasure to be here. So I know that we've chatted briefly about what we wanted to cover today and sort of what the point of this podcast is, the enforcement angle with ELI. And at Sidley, our environmental team has been interviewing a lot of folks from the Environmental Protection Agency, and we thought, wouldn't it be great to also talk to folks from FERC and get a sense about how FERC is meeting the moment with respect to climate change, but also grid reliability and energy prices and all the places where FERC has its statutory authority under the Federal Power Act, Natural Gas Act, Interstate Commerce Act. So I think the first question I just wanted to launch into today is, 
what role that FERC can play either indirectly or directly in addressing climate change. Let me just start off by saying I wouldn't be a halfway decent general counsel if I didn't begin with a disclaimer, which is just that any views I express today are my own and not necessarily those of the commission, the commissioners, or commission staff. So with the boring part out of the way, let me get to your question. This is something that I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about. Back when he was a commissioner, now Chairman Glick, and I actually wrote an article together tackling this very issue. And I'm not going, I will spare, spare our listeners the, the full synopsis of the article. But the takeaway is, yeah, I do think there is an important role for the commission to play with respect to climate change. But it's a very different role than the EPA or the state legislatures because the commission really is not an environmental regulator. There are some things that the commission does that I think do have an important environmental flavor around the siting of infrastructure. But when people think of the stuff for which the commission, I think, is most, I would say, most famous for, infamous for, I don't know, you can choose your word, really with the regulation of gas and electric markets, in that role, the commission is an economic regulator. So its responsibility is not to address climate change. That being said, the thesis of the article that I wrote with the chairman was that FERC, under a very traditional, conventional understanding of FERC's authority, FERC can take actions that have an important, albeit indirect, effect on climate. There are, as you would expect, a lot of examples in the article, but a couple are suffice to make the point. And maybe the best example is the series of rulemakings that FERC has issued over the last decade and a half breaking down barriers to new technologies, whether it's demand response, whether it's energy storage, or most recently aggregated distributed energy resources. These rulemakings, I'm pretty confident they don't mention climate change anywhere in those rulemakings. They are justified on a purely economic basis. The crux of the theory is breaking down barriers to entry to facilitate competition among new resource types. But those resource classes that I mentioned demand response, energy storage, and distributed energy resources are all resources that are either relatively clean in and of themselves or have an important role to play with respect to the grid of the future and a decarbonized grid. So I think that, again, the commission did not take any of those actions for the purpose of addressing climate change, but by breaking down barriers and integrating new technologies into wholesale markets, that's an important step that the commission can take that has an indirect effect of helping to address concerns about climate. I know there's going to be an open meeting tomorrow, I believe, and maybe there's a few more rulemakings on the horizon that go towards breaking down those barriers and getting more different types of generation integrated into the grid. We're certainly not lacking for rulemakings at the moment. I suspect most people will listen to this after the meeting so they'll have a better sense of what those rulemakings do. But based on the title alone, which is on the Sunshine Act, it's clear that the commission is at least potentially taking some action with respect to generator interconnection and then also looking at how it addresses concerns about extreme weather, among other things. As general counsel, actually, for my clients who are the folks who are commenting on these rulemakings, what causes your ears to perk up when you're reading comments when it comes to hearing more from not only the public, but also regulated companies that are impacted by these rulemakings? So I am a lawyer who loves being a lawyer. I'm not one of those people who went to law school because I really want to do policy work. Like I really try to focus on the legal side. So for me, there are three classes of comments, I guess you could say, that really get my attention. One is anything about the commission's jurisdiction, both because it's sort of the quintessential legal question, but it's also something that I find fascinating. Two is anything that argues that the commission has been, is, is, or what the commission is proposing to do or, or considering in a final rule or, or any adjudication is arbitrary and capricious because it's inconsistent with our precedent or what have you. That's obviously something I spend a lot of time thinking about. 
And last, but by no means least, the third major consideration under the APA is whether there's substantial evidence to support what the commission is proposing to do or actually doing. So any time any of those three phrases come up, I promise it has my attention and I'll probably read it a couple times. So every time we comment, we're going to put substantial evidence there and we're going to underline it yep. and highlight it. Underline it, underscore it, bold it, anything. That kind of goes into my next question too, which is, and you kind of touched on this with the article, which I did have the pleasure of reading when it came out a few years ago and had to do with how to interpret the Natural Gas Act, or that was part of the article, I know that. Do you think that FERC needs to expand or reinterpret its statutory authority or jurisdiction in order to address climate change and decision-making? You probably touched on this in your answer before, but I know that this is something that's come up a lot in comments is that FERC is exceeding its authority or not focusing on its core authority. And do you think it needs Congress to step in and rewrite or amend the statutes that are currently in place? I really don't. I know that there was sort of a period of time where particularly focusing on the electric side or sections four and five on the gas side where people were making the argument that the delineation between federal and state authority, for example, had become hazy. And it was not sort of the bright line that the Supreme Court had characterized it at for 60 or 70 years. I sort of disagree with that approach. I think that the jurisdictional lines are relatively clear. And I also think that the right role for the commission is not to sort of become a quasi-environmental regulator alongside the EPA. I think focusing the commission's responsibilities and our work on those core economic questions is the right way to go about it. And facilitating competition, breaking down barriers to entry, I really think that that will have a significant effect. Again, an indirect effect, but a significant one on climate in a way that is consistent with the way the commission has always exercised its authority and sort of the right role for an independent regulatory agency like FERC. Yeah, certainly, given the emphasis that the agency needs to place on reliability, electric reliability, certainly we're experiencing now, we're, we're not even in summer yet officially, it's still late spring, but we've got weather events all over the country that are putting pressure on the grid. As you know, we obviously we saw what happened in winter in Texas, but there's also summer in Texas, which can be just as deadly if you don't have access to proper cooling and other important forms of infrastructure. So what more can FERC be doing to address these burdens on the grid? And is it just, okay, we're going to make it easier to integrate into the grid? We're going to give developers incentives to develop more types of generation? How does FERC play a role in helping resolve some of the problems with bringing us into the electricity grid of the future? It's a great question. So I think, and I, I believe this is probably a unanimous view within the commission, that, that reliability, electric reliability in particular, is the most important thing that the commission does. And I also think that it is getting much harder. Certainly, I think there are several different reasons that it's getting harder, but to me, the biggest one is the threat of extreme weather which is driven primarily by climate change. The increase, certainly the increased threat of extreme weather. That's, there's always been extreme weather, but it's becoming more severe and it's becoming more frequent. And I think the science is pretty clear that that's a result of climate. And that puts tremendous stress on the grid, whether it's storms like Uri, whether it's wildfires in the West, whether it's stronger hurricanes, whether it's heat waves. We're currently experiencing very hot weather for June, which it has both economic impacts. There have been really high prices in several RTOs over the last week, but then also that weather at its most severe can have significant reliability impacts too. It can cause load shedding during really, or can lead to load shedding, I should say, during some pretty unsafe conditions. 
So I think one of the things, and again, there is a NOPR with a title that sort of hints at this on the Commission Sunshine Notice for tomorrow, is making sure that utilities and all the entities under our jurisdiction plan for the extreme weather and the other consequences of climate. That is inherently tied up in our reliability responsibilities, which I said I think are the, are the most important thing that the Commission does. Beyond that, though, I do think there are a lot of other things that the Commission can do with respect to infrastructure. And on this one, I think transmission, electric transmission, is one of the most important things. We go back to Winter Storm Uri, Texas had significant load shed that lasted for days during really unsafe conditions. MISO and SPP, by contrast, had relatively limited load shed, which is still a serious issue, but much more limited. And part of that was because they had transmission interconnections with the neighboring RTOs, PJM in particular, and they were able to import a lot of electricity, which helped them balance the system. Transmission isn't a perfect solution because there obviously has to be generation there as well. And because Texas is not interconnected to the rest of the country, there are some questions too about whether there would have been adequate generation, even if those transmission connections had been in place. But I do think that's a very important part of the solution to maintaining reliability generally, but particularly in the face of extreme weather. Yeah, and I know about a number of project developers who are trying to move forward with helping to resolve the issues of transmission and are, are there ways to get ERCOT or parts of Texas more interconnected to the grid without jeopardizing ERCOT's jurisdictional freedom, as they might refer to it down in Texas. And we know that there have been some statutes passed recently with the Infrastructure Act that try to make it easier, potentially, to site and to pay for transmission, which is notoriously difficult to site because there's no eminent domain authority, federal, who's going to pay for it. And I think those are really the, the two areas where FERC shines, which is helping figure out who's going to pay for transmission infrastructure. And do you think that there are any highlights in the recent infrastructure legislation that FERC can really build off of as it looks at solving these problems? I do. I think the most obvious answer is in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, Congress included an amendment to Section 216 of the Federal Power Act that overrides a decision issued by the Fourth Circuit that limited the commission's backstop citing authority, which is right. what 216 exists to do. There's a somewhat complicated relationship where DOE has some responsibility and FERC has some others. But there had been, and we can go into it if you want, but that's the long and short of it is there was a Fourth Circuit decision that severely limited the commission's authority to do backstop citing. I would not characterize the 216 amendments as a game changer. I don't think that suddenly uh, a majority of projects or project miles are suddenly going to be cited by FERC as opposed to states. But I do think it's an important, it could in some instances serve to be an important tool, particularly for larger multi-state projects that may face particular citing hurdles. Again, I don't think, though, it's going to displace the states. And under this chairman, in particular, coordination and cooperation with the states on transmission has been a priority. So I think it would be a mistake to suggest that this is going to sort of upset that traditional siting balance. But it's an important tool in the tool chest. It's probably not a hammer. It's a more eccentric tool, but it's a tool nonetheless. I also think that a lot of the other transmission-related provisions, they give some really important authority to DOE and less so to FERC. DOE obviously does a lot of really important work in transmission development that then has effects on the facilities that FERC regulates and the utilities that FERC regulates. We also know, too, that transmission is notoriously expensive, and figuring out how we're going to fund that is always an important question. And at FERC, you're not the state-level regulator dealing with the ultimate consumers of electricity. That's, at, like I said, that's the state level. But now that FERC has this Office of Public Participation what kind of role do you see that playing in terms of how we're going to 
allocate costs for these new transmission facilities because we all know that the grid needs to improve. We all know we need to build more. We all know it's going to be expensive and we need to figure out how to pay for it. Is there any discussion of FERC in terms of how this interplays with the new Office of Public Participation? At one of our recent NERU discussions, Rich, or Chairman Glick, started it off by sort of analogizing transmission to a famous Dale Bumpers quote, which is, everyone wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die. I think there's something similar there with transmission. Everyone wants more transmission, but no one wants to pay for it, because it is, as you say, very expensive. I think the Office of Public Participation will play an important role there. I mean, it's not a decisional office, so they're, they're not weighing in on the merits with the commission, but their responsibility is to ensure that a broad range of stakeholders, including those that aren't traditionally represented in front of the commission or don't necessarily have prestigious law firms like Sidley representing them, can participate and have their voices heard as well. And, I, and certainly the cost of transmission is going to be one of those. I think one of those issues that they weigh in on I also think that there's going to be an important role for the Office of Public Participation with respect to those 216 amendments I mentioned just a second ago, because the commission does have eminent domain authority, and the exercise of that eminent domain authority obviously has consequences for landowners and for people who live in the vicinity of a proposed project, even if they don't own the land over which it's proposed to traverse. So making sure that their views are incorporated in any citing proceedings that the commission does, I think will also be a very important responsibility by the Office of Public Participation. What do you think is needed to facilitate and maintain low-cost delivery of electricity as we've seen the resource mix changing across the country? I'm probably going to sound like a broken record, but I'm going to go back to transmission again. I think it's important for so many different reasons. One is when it comes to bringing on new resources, which are the resources that customers are demanding, that companies are demanding, that are necessary to meet state policies and to meet federal procurement goals. Right now, the interconnection queues to bring those resources on are long, and the cost of interconnecting is really costly. And those are costs that are ultimately borne by consumers, both the delays associated with bringing projects on, but then the actual dollar cost of interconnection. Increased transmission capacity, smartly designed and planned transmission facilities can help bring that cost down significantly. So that's one element of maintaining affordable power. But in addition, particularly as we get to, as the resource mix changes, transmission is incredibly important for moving power around the country and between regions, both within regions, but then also between regions. And that, again, we've seen just over the last week or two, we've seen huge price spreads within RTOs, and we've seen huge price spreads, like differences of over $1,000, $2,000 in some instances between neighboring RTOs. So building out the transmission infrastructure to arbitrage those price spreads, obviously there's a reliability component, as we talked about it a minute ago, but also that you can help keep costs in check by accessing lower cost power, both as I say, sort of over the long term by bringing those resources on, but even in the short term by ensuring that we're using the most efficient and lowest cost set of resources to meet demand at any particular moment. Transmission is expensive, so it's a big investment, but I also think it has the potential to help reduce costs as well that, that often gets ignored when we look at the price tag. Yeah, and I primarily am a pipeline lawyer. Most of what I've been doing my career has been representing pipelines at FERC. And do you think there are lessons learned from the way FERC has regulated the pipeline industry, which does have maybe more redundancies sometimes than the transmission grid that you can apply to building out the grid for electrification? Yeah, I do. The system is different because so much of the way that pipelines, as you know, and as I suspect a lot of the listeners know, so much of the way that pipelines are financed are through bilateral contracts with shippers. 
and the corollary on the electric side would be merchant transmission projects, which are those where the, basically the developer funds the cost and then recovers it through bilateral contracts. And that just is not used nearly as much on the electric side for a whole host of reasons. So that isn't a direct parallel, but I do think there are a couple important lessons. One, FERC is amazing at citing linear infrastructure pipelines, but also transmission facilities to the extent they use that backstop authority that I mentioned. We just have the Office of Energy Projects, the, the, the component of my office, the general counsel's office that does that citing. They're really highly skilled people that know how to do this work. So I think importing those lessons can be something that FERC does with respect to the actual citing. But I also think there are more qualitative lessons to be learned as well about the importance of redundancy, the way network infrastructure can work together. It can help for, as it regulates transmission planning. I mean, it's not one-to-one. We're not transmission planners, just like we don't plan out the pipeline grid. That's done by private entities, and we just do our certifications. But I think there are lessons that can be learned and passed along about how you build a redundant system based on linear infrastructure. To be clear, I mean redundant in a good way, because redundant relates to no, reliable, I know what too. you mean. I was just kind of smiling because I know one of the major tensions, especially with rate making, is how much redundant we, we have this used and useful concept. And so with redundancy, obviously we need it. We see the importance of redundancy when we have major pipelines shut down, like Colonial Pipeline last year. Because you can't just build another pipeline along Interstate I-95. Believe it or not, that would be difficult to do. Really hard, yes. But also how we inform the regulator the importance of redundancy and that we should be able to recover those costs for the redundancy because there are benefits to that. And the benefits happen on the days that the prices spike. So how we communicate as regulated entities, how you communicate the value of redundancy and that it's something that is worth putting into rates. Because in the past, that's been hard to do. And we see sometimes with these price spikes, the outcome of not having redundant systems in place. Yeah, I think that's right. It's not a one-to-one comparison. But on the electric side, we often talk about resilience and the resilience benefits of transmission. And you see it both in something like Winter Storm Uri, where transmission helps keep the lights on. But then there are also transmission lines go down or their capacity is reduced when the weather is extremely hot. So making sure there's adequate capacity to maintain the system under less than ideal conditions is really, really important. Again, both for ultimately protecting customers because it helps keep rates at reasonable levels, but then also ensuring the reliability of the system. The problem is it's a little bit more qualitative. As long as you meet your NERC criteria, it's harder to say exactly what the benefits of that redundancy are. But I agree it's something that should be considered in the planning system. And I, the commission's most recent NOPER, the one on transmission planning and cost allocation that went out in April, I do think gives transmission planners some space to consider that redundancy if the commission goes ahead and some additional space, I should say. They obviously consider it now if the commission yeah. goes ahead and finalizes that rule. Okay. And then I guess on the pipeline side, how closely... I hope closely, is FERC monitoring developments with respect to different types of fuels being transported via pipe? I mean, clearly, your jurisdiction under the Natural Gas Act arguably doesn't, or actually, I think we know doesn't apply to, say, CO2, for example. But hydrogen also, we know we have pipelines who are blending some hydrogen into their systems. How closely is FERC monitoring what pipelines are doing to invest in different types of fuels and different types of maybe greener forms of natural gas, responsible natural gas, renewable natural gas. There's many words for it. And do you see the need for any rulemakings there or new statutory authority there? It's something we're keeping an eye on in a couple of different respects. We've, I won't speak about the specific filing, but we've received some to incorporate 
whether it's renewable gas or responsibly sourced gas, or there are different monikers that go with it into pipeline tariffs, and the Commission's, of course, acting on those. An issue that we hear a lot about, too, is hydrogen blending. And uh, I'm, here I'm going to reveal the limits of my technical understanding. But basically, the, as I understand it, the chemical properties of hydrogen are very different than the chemical properties of natural gas. The different molecules. Yes, exactly, exactly right, as our various scientists explain to me on a regular basis. And so there is blending that's being done in some parts of the country, but there may have to be some retrofits or casing changes or things along those lines so that the natural gas pipeline that operates with a relatively high percentage of hydrogen in it would need some retrofits or to the extent we're building a new one might just be built to handle that. And that's something we are taking a look at. Because we're relatively reactive on the siting side, we would consider it when an application is presented to the commission. But I mean, you can sort of because, again, it's something a lot of regulated entities are interested in, it's something states are interested in, it's something customers are interested in. We are keeping abreast of those developments and trying to learn what we can about what is needed or what the Commission's role should be and how we think about whether changes to the infrastructure that we're permitting, doing it slightly differently in anticipation of those changes, is something the Commission needs to get ahead of. Yeah. Also seeing this with jet fuel, renewable jet fuels on the oil pipeline side as well. It's interesting because of the different jurisdictional interplays between what FERC is allowed to do under the Interstate Commerce Act versus the Natural Gas Act and how much authority the agency has under both statutes. So it's something we're watching as well and trying to help clients navigate through on our end. Which kind of brings me into another question, kind of related but not entirely, is are there certain key technologies that you think are facing the largest barriers to entry? And does FERC have a role to play to remove those barriers when it comes to bringing us into the, our future grid, our future energy delivery systems? I think the single biggest barrier right now is technology agnostic, and that's the interconnection queues. They are long, and the process of getting interconnected is expensive, and that affects all sorts of different technologies. And again, the commission has a item on its sunshine notice for tomorrow's meeting that, at least based on the title, seems like it may very well address or propose to address some of those issues. That's certainly a big one. I also think that there are some technology-specific ones, some of which are still tied up with the interconnection process. How storage is modeled, for example. Storage is going to act differently than a traditional generator in a lot of ways in terms of when they're likely to charge and when they're not and how that is modeled and incorporated into the system. And then increasingly, storage is paired with solar or wind and to create what, what we call hybrid resources, which have their own operating characteristics and ensuring that market rules, legacy market rules, don't act as a barrier to those resources or don't sort of impede those operating characteristics is an important thing for the commission to do. And then the last resource class that I point to is offshore wind. I mean, this offshore wind development is being driven largely by the states at this point, which is not to say the federal government doesn't have an important role with respect to siting since most of the projects are in federal waters. But as we sort of look past individual state projects or projects that are built pursuant to individual state RFPs, I think making sure the grid is capable of bringing on the gigawatts of offshore wind that seems like we're headed towards is going to be an important issue. And I think if we don't do it smartly, it could represent a significant barrier to entry for those resources as well. I know we talked about this briefly already, but are you seeing any new or increased jurisdictional tensions between FERC and state and local regulators generally, but also with respect to how much coordination is going on when these state regulators are citing these projects? How much coordination is going on at the federal level to make sure you don't just have these stranded assets in the middle of the ocean that are shiny and new but can't actually deliver energy to the rest of the country? 
in my view, and I should be upfront, this is something I've also spent some time writing about. I actually think the division between federal and state authority is relatively clear. So I don't think there have to be tensions, or I don't think that tensions are built into the statutory framework. That being said, by virtue of the fact that states regulate one part of the electricity sector and FERC and the federal government regulate another, there are going to be inevitable indirect effects between the two. I don't think those effects have to be the source of tension, though. I think, again, one thing that the current commission has put a lot of emphasis on is cooperation with the states. This was a theme of the transmission planning and cost allocation NOPER I mentioned a minute ago. This is very important to a number of different commissioners, including the chairman, but also Commissioner Christie. I think all the commissioners have said something to the effect of the importance of federal-state cooperation, which is a long-winded wind-up to my answer, which is basically to say, I don't think there has to be that tension. And I think provided FERC works with the states and they can use the federal regulators and state regulators can use their authority sort of through a cooperative federalist paradigm, I think that can reduce a lot of the tensions. I think offshore wind is, to get to your specific example, it is new because it's, as you say, it's a fancy, shiny new technology. But the idea of states procuring certain resources echoes back to the dawn of the Federal Power Act. And that situation is a little bit different because offshore wind is predominantly being procured by states in RTOs and ISOs right now. But this idea that states choose particular generation assets and then FERC operates the bulk power system in a way that accommodates those assets and then takes maximum advantage of them and to the extent there's transmission needed to integrate those assets that transmission is planned and paid for appropriately. I don't think that has to give rise to tensions. And in fact, I think if it's a priority of FERC, as I think it is right now, I think those tensions can be reduced and you can sort of have maybe I'm just being optimistic, but you can have a pretty durable regulatory framework for bringing those assets online. Yeah, I think that's true. I know at least just based on being an audience member for some of the recent commission meetings, and there's the tension between, especially when we're talking about some states prioritizing renewable energy over other states, and concern that the states that are not prioritizing renewable energy are going to be subsidizing the states that are prioritizing renewable energy. I know that's comments that have been made by a certain commissioner in some of that person's dissents or their commentary. I guess there's different ways that this jurisdictional tension can arise, but maybe that's just the beauty of the federal system is that we're always going to have these tensions. I think that's right. And I think interaction between different state policies is inevitable when you have multi-state markets. And I think there are huge benefits to multi-state markets. Like ERCOT right now gets to operate as an island and Texas's policy or lack thereof essentially governs that market. There are obviously huge downsides to that approach, as we saw in Winter Storm Uri. And I think we see when there are price spreads between Texas and neighboring regions. For me, the role of FERC on a more general, in a multi-state market, is not to try and, and this is my personal view, I should stress that again, is not to try and treat each state as an island within this larger market, but rather let each state do its thing. That is what I think Section 201B of the Federal Power Act contemplates by giving states authority over resource decision-making then make sure that that larger market procures the services needed to ensure the reliability of the grid, develops the infrastructure needed, namely transmission. And then the interaction between state policies is inevitable. And I know we spend a lot of time on that now because it's a big deal. And states are getting more aggressive in the way that they regulate the resource mix, primarily because of concerns about climate change. But PJM has been around for almost 20 years now, and most states throughout that time, not most, but a significant number of the states throughout that time have had renewable portfolio standards or have subsidized particular types of resources. And it's not just renewables, whether it's coal, natural gas. These subsidies in one form or another have always been there. 
And I think when you have states exercising the authority that Congress expressly reserved to them, I think there are going to be those cross-jurisdictional effects. And by cross-jurisdictional, I mean between states, not between federal and state. Those certainly exist as well. Yeah, we were driving home from South Carolina last weekend with my husband from the beach. And I think my husband made a comment like, maybe we should just have one government and not have all these state governments. And my response to him was, maybe, but there are certain things I don't want the federal government handling, which is everything. We need to figure out some division of power there. I think he was just frustrated over a certain issue and how it was being debated. <laughs> no, I, I get that. I think when the federal government does exactly what you want it to do, then maybe it seems easier to have a single government. I think on the whole, though, a federalist system like we have is much more resilient and allows for differences across the country to not upset the overall system. I mean, that's a broader political commentary that I can leave there. But it's certainly true when it comes to the power sector as well. Different states have very different approaches. And I think our system allows for that, which I think is a good outcome. Yeah. Speaking of ERCOT, I'd always thought that we need a natural gas policy act for electricity so that you could get these interconnections between different states without necessarily impacting the jurisdictional status. Maybe that would be helpful, but that obviously is for Congress to figure out, not for FERC yep. to figure out. I'm always happy when we can shift a problem from the commission to Congress, and that one is definitely yeah. their responsibility. <laughs> So my final question that I know is near and dear to your heart, which is how do you see FERC specifically incorporating equity and energy justice considerations into its decisions and regulations? This is a question that I do care about a lot, and I think there are a couple different facets. One is, I'll call it procedural, for lack of a better term, although that really is not a perfect term. There are environmental justice communities, however defined, I think it is descriptively accurate to say that they typically bear an outsized impact of a lot of infrastructure development and do not have a voice at the table or a seat at the table with the entities that permit that infrastructure. And I think it is incredibly important from a policy perspective and then also a moral one, to be quite honest, that they have that opportunity to express their views and to be heard when it comes to regulatory decisions, whether market-based decisions or infrastructure permitting decisions that are going to affect their livelihood, but also their quality of life, whether it's a health issue or any number of other things. As I said, I think it's critically important that the relevant regulators ensure that those communities have an opportunity to be heard. But I don't think it's purely procedural and that it's about an opportunity to be heard, too. I think it is also true that FERC's mandates, and it differs a little bit with respect to different mandates, but that they contemplate considering environmental justice issues, whether it's under the public interest or the public convenience or necessity or what have you. There's a site for this now. Last summer, the D.C. Circuit issued an opinion, an LNG citing case. The case is called Vecinos where it held that the commission acted arbitrarily and capriciously in its consideration of EJ impacts of a proposed facility. And it didn't just send a question back to the commission to sort of dot its I's and cross its T's, but it actually told the commission that it had to redo its public interest and public convenience and necessity determinations in light of that correct environmental justice, non-arbitrary and capricious environmental justice analysis, which I think stands for the proposition that those considerations, the EJ considerations are tied up with the commission's public convenience and necessity and public interest determinations, which I think is right. It's hard for me to see how you can really evaluate the public interest without thinking about impacts on those communities that most directly bear the proximate consequences of infrastructure in that case. So I do think there's a substantive component too. It's most easy to see on the infrastructure siting side, whether it's pipelines, transmission facilities, hydroelectric facilities, LNG facilities, 
But I also think that there are some potential EJ and equity implications on other aspects of the commission's authority, although it's never going to be as direct as it is when we talk about citing a major new facility and the consequences that facility has on the people that live next to it. So is that more embracing a different type of NEPA process in order to get more of those voices participating in the decision-making process? Is that where you think that comes in? On the infrastructure siting side, I think NEPA is obviously the statute that we use to facilitate a lot of that consideration. The participatory side may include, it's going to be different things in different cases, but maybe it's more meetings in communities or it's ensuring different types of information is shared. I also think, though, that with respect to NEPA, there's also a substantive component, too, in that a lot of infrastructure is developed in areas where there is already a lot of infrastructure. And so we have to consider the cumulative consequences. And considering the cumulative consequences of infrastructure doesn't mean you don't build any more infrastructure in that area. There are often good economic reasons, among others, for why infrastructure is built in a particular area. If you're going to export LNG, for example, it makes a lot of sense to build it next to a robust pipeline network where it's easy to bring a ship in. And there are only so many places like that in the country. But I also think it's really, really important that we consider what the the cumulative impacts of the umpteenth facility on communities that already bear a lot of those consequences. And as I say, that doesn't preclude a finding that the facility is still in the public interest or not inconsistent with the public interest, but it is critically important, in my view, to consider the facility in the context in which it will actually operate and in light of those impacts that the communities already bear. Again, I don't see how anyone can say that they are considering the public interest without fully considering the public interest without thinking about those considerations as well. Well, Matt, I really want to thank you so much for your time this morning. Before I let you go, I would love to hear just a little bit more about what brought you to FERC, how you got to be general counsel of the agency, and what got you interested in this area of the law. I always knew I was interested in climate. I went to law school because I thought I wanted to be a classic environmental lawyer. I thought I wanted to learn about the Clean Air Act. And I went to school at the time when the Waxman-Markey cap-and-trade bill had just passed the House. You know how it ended in the Senate. To be quite honest, I found that I hated environmental law. Hated's too strong. It, It didn't evoke, I cared a lot about climate, but learning about BACT and other things that are critically important to environmental protection issues just... It was not as interesting to me personally as as I might have hoped. I knew I wanted to learn more about energy, and this is a sort of weird coincidence. Miles Farmer, who is a legal advisor to Commissioner Clements, he and I were in the same class in law school and very good friends in law school and still today. We bought an energy textbook and read it together and then would argue about the cases, having no understanding of the background. We would argue about the cases with each other a couple times a week, and I actually found that was one of the most interesting things I did in law school. Shortly after law school, I was lucky enough to clerk on the D.C. Circuit for Stephen Williams, who is a brilliant judge in his own right, before going on the bench, was an oil and gas professor. And as, again, I suspect most listeners to the podcast know, FERC's orders are overwhelmingly appealed to the D.C. Circuit. And he had the reputation of, of a FERC expert. I will say they're not the most popular cases among judges and clerks on the D.C. Circuit, but he was the outlier in that sense. So I got to work on a handful of cases for him, and I absolutely loved it. I knew that's what I wanted to do. I took a bit of a detour before coming to work at FERC because my then-girlfriend, now-wife, had a couple clerkships in New York, and I dutifully followed her up there. But when those were done and we decided to move back to D.C., I knew FERC was the place I wanted to work. That was the only only place I applied, and luckily I got a job there. And I spent about a year and a half in the general counsel's office, which was fantastic. And then Rich Glick was confirmed as a commissioner, and he hired me as a legal advisor, and I spent just over three years working for him. 
And then when President Biden named him chair, we joked that I was the first person he kicked out of his office. He had had all of his original advisors up until that point until he sent me to become the general counsel, which is, I am quite confident, the best job I'll ever have. I guess this is public, so I can don't tell Rich. I think it's the best job in the agency, too. But it's been fantastic for the last year and a half that I've been privileged enough to do it. Well, kudos to you. Um, what a great story. And really, it's been really a delight to get to speak with you this morning and hear your views and get a little bit more insight into decision making at FERC. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Emily. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.